This season of Smashing the Ceiling is brought to you by the Skylark Collective. Skylark is a new London-based network for women in podcasting, and this year we'll be hosting the inaugural International Women's Podcast Awards at the Albright in London. The collective exists to raise the voices of women in podcasting, both behind the mic and behind the scenes, and to showcase the work of women out there producing incredible audio moments through the medium of podcasting. So if you've got your own podcast or you're thinking of starting one, Head to our website at skylarkcollective.co.uk for more information or follow us on socials at the Skylark Collective. Now, on with the show. I think for me, especially as a woman, it's to plan your career. We plan a holiday, but we don't often plan our career. And I don't mean in saying I have to be like, I got this a bit wrong saying I have to be here at this time. But it's working out what makes you happy. Is your career still making you happy? And being able to reflect on that. Hi there, everyone, and welcome to Smashing the Ceiling with me, Naomi Mella. On this podcast, we love to showcase the lives of women who have achieved amazing things in their careers, those who've got a really cool or unusual job, and some who've just had a really interesting life. If you're looking for inspiration for your career, if you feel a little stuck or bored with what you're doing right now, or if you're in search of the road less travelled job-wise, then this is the podcast for you. Each week, I sit down with one woman to dig a little deeper into the how of it all. How did they get where they are? How did they pick themselves up when things didn't go right? And how their mentors, mistakes and motivations have led them to achieve the things they have. When you're in a box career-wise, it can be hard to get out of it. Sometimes it's pressure from others or from society that keeps you in that box. And sometimes it's your own internal monologue telling you that you can't do anything else. But sometimes, life events get you out of your box and send you on a different path. Imogen Tinkler is a case in point here. After an adventurous childhood in Pakistan and studying Russian with politics at uni, Imogen thought she was going to be a lawyer. After losing her mother, though, she reconsidered her priorities and subsequently forged a successful career in the charities and not-for-profit sector, becoming a director at the age of 31 and working with David Cameron and Gordon Brown. After her dad became ill, though, Imogen reinvented herself again, quitting her job and starting a food business, Bangers and Balls, with her husband, Duncan. Imogen and Duncan are aiming to start a revolution from your kitchen table. They began with pop-up restaurants, but now take foraging expeditions, telling the tales of food surrounding you in the natural world. And they've written a new book, Foraging Fairy Tales, which has just gone straight into the Amazon Top 10. As well as being a successful businesswoman and master marketeer, Imogen is also a keen wild swimmer with a love of the ocean and being in water. And she told me here about how swimming saved her after the loss of her eight-week-old baby daughter in the midst of the pandemic last year. Her positivity and infectious enthusiasm, despite everything she's encountered, made me just want to be her friend and move to Kent immediately to join her gang of swimmers. As a trigger warning, we do discuss grief and loss in this podcast, but listen in if you can for warmth, energy, and lots of great advice from Imogen. Imogen's audio is a tiny bit muffled in the middle of this interview, but do stick with it because it gets better. Cool. Well, thank you, Imogen, so much for joining me on the podcast today. I'm so excited to have you. Um, Now, I heard you saying in another interview that you gave that your your parents were Irish and you grew up in Pakistan, which sounds very exciting. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about growing up and your kind of childhood in the moving around the world? Yeah, definitely. People always ask if my dad was in the forces or if he was a spy, but my dad worked in um, <laughs> banking and my mother was a nurse. And so it was amazing that we got to travel. They came from Ireland and they settled in Essex for a little while and then one day dad came home and asked me how I'd feel about moving schools and it was in the middle of a recession so I assumed that you know my parents couldn't afford to send me to the school so I said oh as long as I can see my friends every day and um, he was like "Mm, we're going to Pakistan I was like oh and he showed me on the map and then he told me that I had a swimming pool so then I was like that's fine and off we went to Pakistan but I was about seven when we went there and I came back to the UK when I was 11 but for me it was one of the most magical places to to grow up there was so much from like the mangrove swamps we drove up into China we went through to Afghanistan through the Khyber Pass one of the last people foreigners to do that we just 
explored so much and the culture and the food and going to the markets it really became part of who I was and obviously you've seen some of the politics as well they often say the 992 was the bloodiest time in Karachi and people often think from insurgents but actually it was from a lot from drug trade and you see it coming down from Afghanistan so it opened your eyes up to the world but I think it gives you a really different perspective um, away from your local kind of quite idyllic Essex childhood that you saw and my parents definitely had an Irish twist on the way they seen things and then they went off to Australia which I got to go to for a little bit as well but we really traveled a lot around the Middle East and you know went to Jordan and Israel and Palestine you know to all these different places and I think it expands your horizon so much and you use that as you build your career I think. And it sounds like your parents were very adventurous people did they kind of instill that sense of adventure into you as as a child as well Imogen? Oh definitely like my dad it's funny he came you know he grew up in came to England by boat and grew up in Ilford yet he got this job in banking and worked his way up and he hadn't heard he said of a lot of these countries before he started going but it opened his eyes so much and the stories he would tell. And my mum, you know, she didn't expect to go to the Cameroons at 22 as a blonde haired Irish woman. She was it was completely different for her in the 70s. But they just got the taste for it and loved new cultures and meeting new people. And yeah, it definitely gave me that thirst to want to explore and, and see the world. But also, actually, I realised I'd never been up north in the UK until I started university. So also wanting to explore more what was on my doorstep, because sometimes we're running so fast to see the rest of the world. We forget to think, wow, where do we live? What's around us as well? So funny that is. I find that such an irony that quite often you meet people who are very well traveled outside of the UK and then they'll say, oh, but I've never been to Scotland or I've never been to the west coast of Wales or, you know, somewhere that's that's not that far away but we have this tendency like you say you know pre-covid to hop on a plane and and be seeking adventure and excitement everywhere else in the world but actually not really looking at what's kind of on our doorstep I guess yeah completely and that's it was when I went to university and I realized whenever we came back to the UK we'd always go to Ireland because that's you know where my mum was from it's where her family is and her friends and we I mean we went to Scotland but we drove to Perth to drop something off to someone and drove back again because my mum wouldn't have thought that was a long journey she'd be like oh well off we go so I grew up a little bit like that as well (laughs) love that I love that and also I think kind of instilling instilling that sense of freedom whether it's traveling or just in general is so important particularly to to young girls And, and I know um Certainly other friends of mine who've gone on to solo travel have always said that actually having that kind of sense of freedom and adventure and bravery instilled in you as a norm when you're a child actually is majorly helpful when you become an adult in terms of pushing your own boundaries and and actually kind of just enjoying what you're doing, I guess, as well. Definitely. And I think also one of the things which is I use across everything is also instilling risk. So you are understanding what risk like looks like when you travel in different countries. As a woman, is that risk going to be higher? Or I always remember I was staying in Thailand on my gap year and you know, I'd been sharing rooms with people. But on my last night, I didn't want to share with anyone because I was petrified if they'd put something in my bag or you didn't. Try. And the lady was like, but I'm a nun. And I said, yeah, that's the perfect cover. I said, I think you're more of a risk. And she was just laughing so much. But there was, you know, it was learning that risk and you, you apply that then to everything that you do. And I'm already teaching my three-year-old that and I can see her as she assesses the risk because sometimes we do, you know, there's lots of studies in psychology where if it's a boy or a girl, the dad will actually let the boy and the girl do more, but the mum will reduce how steep the slide is for a girl versus a boy. So it's to ourselves that we do it. And I'm like, oh, I don't want her to do that. So if I can teach her the risk, but also I'm noticing that for myself, I think it really helps. And it helps you when you go to work and in everything, in everything you do, really. And I think that's such a hard balance to tread as a parent. I mean, I don't have children of my own, but treading that line between risk and being overly risk averse is actually, I imagine, very difficult as a parent and picking the the places that and the things that you'll allow versus the things that you know are too worrying. I th- I reckon must be pretty tricky. It's definitely, especially with like the work that we do. But it was funny when we went camping, my husband was like, no, you can't go near the fire. 
And I was like, yes, you can. We're going to have 20 hours of fire lessons. And when you've done your 20 hours, <laughs> then you can. And she was like, okay. So she kept asking every day, can I have my fire lesson? But now she knows it's hot, that it's dangerous, and she's still not allowed close to it, but she can gather the wood to help do it or toast her marshmallow. And I think rather than just being scared of something, that's made her, she's excited to be working towards being allowed to tend the fire, even though I know that's going to be when she's five or six. But those 20 hours, she, she's aware of it and she's moving towards it. I think it's how you approach it sometimes. <laughs> Yeah, that's incredible. I love that. I love that. Um, so you you mentioned that you went up north for university and um, you studied Russian at University of Virginia. What was it that drew you towards doing that? Because that's quite an unusual degree. Do you want the honest the honest answer? Because I just is yes, that, love an honest answer. <laughs> I didn't get the A levels I wanted. I wanted to do straight politics, and so I thought, oh, I'm going to have to go to a different university. But then I realised if I did politics and Russian. I only needed two B's and a C versus two A's and a B. So I thought I'll get into university on politics and Russian and then I'll just drop the Russian once I'm in because I've got in the door. And I thought that was genius. The school didn't necessarily agree with me, but I remember my dad going, that, that's great. And so I did that. But when I got there, Russian became the favourite part of my, like I did a lot of Russian history and Russian literature and that became actually one of the favourite parts of my degree. So I didn't drop it, but it was purely so I could get in the door of Leeds, which is where I wanted to go. And did you spend a year in Russia as part of that degree? I was meant to go to Russia for a year, but my mum became terminally ill. So unfortunately, okay. I didn't get to go and spend that year with everyone else in Russia, which actually made my degree a little bit harder. But um, I have been to Russia and my dad used to do a lot of business in Russia in the 80s which is why a lot of people used to think he was a spy but it was very so I have I, I learned a lot and I spent a, and I also then found a lot of I know it's a bit odd but I found a lot of people who were Russian to go and speak to them to ask about it because I knew I couldn't immerse myself in the culture like everyone else could for that year but yeah I'm sorry to hear that about your mum but it sounds like you made up for it in your kind of indomitable way <laughs> it seems to be quite <laughs> evident with everything you do Imogen and and so how did you kind of um, get on into the world of work because I know you you started in um, kind of branding and marketing and, and working in charity work for a, a long time you spent sort of 10 years with multiple different charities including the RNIB and, S and SPCC how did you kind of decide on what you were going to do after you finished your degree? Well, the first thing I did when I finished my, I wanted to work in events and PR. And I remember I sat with my father and I wrote to a hundred companies. And then he told me that wasn't enough. I needed to write to some more. So I wrote to all of these companies and I got three replies, which doesn't sound very much. But from that, I got two job offers. But I remember they offered me £13,000 a year, which I was like, that's great. It's what I want to do. And I remember my dad going, but that's not going to cover your rent, your train fare. You just you're going to have to get another job for a year before you go and do that. I was like, you could help me, and he was like, no, this is you working out your path. I'm not sure if I agree with him, but um, so then, and my mum was still terminally ill then, so it was also if I was doing events, how would I help to look after my mum? So there was balance. So I went and took a job in recruitment for a year, which, to be honest, at the time I was like, oh god, because people do judge you for working in recruitment. But I had a great year. I got jobs for all of my friends who were finishing uni. I got them into templates, got them some amazing jobs like a Michelin guides and things. <laughs> it was great. I also earned good commission. So that helped me to buy my flat in London. But I also learned how to apply for jobs and what people were looking for. So actually that year really taught me so much. And then I thought, OK, I'm going to build the money up and then go and work at events because I don't need to rely on anyone else. But I think losing my mum changed my mindset. And I'd always wanted at university. I was part of um, RAG, which is Raise and Give. And I wanted to stay on for a year and run it. And I'd always done a lot of charity, you know, work and volunteering throughout my whole life. It was something that was important. And then I realized I could do it as a job. I was like, wow. And I remember I applied for a job at the Variety Club Children's Charity and it had the events part. So like events at like the Dorchester and we did one with Muhammad Al-Fai and Girls Aloud at Harrods as one of the first events I worked on. I was like, oh, and we did, you know, this was just amazing. But it wasn't so much the glitz and glamour of the event. I just enjoyed making people feel special and pulling that 
together. But then I also got to do things around policy. So using my politics. And we worked, for example, like with David Cameron and Gordon Brown, because they had children with disabilities, about how we could raise more funds. And then I also did the fundraising side. So the events like the marathon and and I realized that I loved it so much. And you got to connect with people so many ways from building strategic partnerships, like with the cooperative group. And I mean, I remember being so excited because we'd got our logo on all of their plastic bags and at their ATM machines. And that was like, wow, people are going to see our logo everywhere. But you also got to work with the trustees who all ran their own successful businesses. So you had all of these mentors as well that you were learning so much from. So it was really interesting to be in the charity sector. And then because of the age I was, you know, Facebook was brand new. So I remember going, oh, I'll set up Facebook. So I got to do a lot of the digital and marketing and kind of, I was quite lucky at work. They'd often let me carve out my own role. I didn't realize till I looked back that I must have been sometimes a bit difficult in the fact that they were like, let's just let her make her own role because she brings in the money. Um, and that's when I, but I just loved doing something that had a sense of purpose and that I really believed in. Sometimes it was hard because when you work in the charity sector, People go, oh, it's easy because every corporate wants to support you. You have to remind people there's 180,000 charities out there. So you're all fighting for that space. But also, for me, I would have, if someone else was going into the charity sector, I'd say do a year or two in corporate first because people just respect you more. And it's not fair necessarily, but it does, it does really help. But I loved building that career throughout the sector. And it, as I went on, it, I changed him, changed what I'm doing and obviously moved up a bit. <laughs> so much to unpack there. Um, just going back to one thing you said after you you lost your mum, that it really kind of changed your mindset. Can you just expand on that a little bit, Imogen? Like how did, what did you change kind of from to and how did you kind of shift what you thought you were going to do into what you actually did, do you think? I think, and never know the PC way around this, but it is about my mother. My mother was, you know, Irish. She'd come from Ireland as an immigrant. And to my mum, I did law medicine or engineering that those were my choices and I didn't really dad always would you know I wasn't really what I wanted to do but I always felt that's probably what I should I should do a law conversion course so partly after she died I had a bit of freedom where I went god I can do what I want and I'm not going to upset her and I've never she would always have been proud but it's what we tell ourselves sometimes and I thought, I can I can do what I want. And my dad always said to me, you're in a career for a long time. It's about being happy in what you do. And it's not always chasing the, the money. Because I always felt like I should be earning X amount to be comfortable. But once I got my flat and I had a mortgage, I kind of felt, again, that I had a lot more freedom. But that sense of purpose became important. I couldn't just go to work and do something I didn't believe in. And even in recruitment, you know, sometimes you could get spoke. I remember one day they shouted at me for something. We had to sit in the middle of a room and we got shouted at. And I just was like, why am I putting up with this? I don't want to be shouted at like this. No. And I remember, I think I quit like two days later. I was told to not quit without another job. But I thought, I've got my own money in the bank. I'll, I'll do what I want. And I'm not being spoken. So I think it was important to me about the culture of an organisation and how we were spoken to really changed. And life is short, isn't it? And you think, God, if my mum died at 50, I might only have 30 years left. I'm going to make every moment of it count and no one else is going to tell me what to do. That makes me sound a bit difficult, but it is how you begin to think, I think. Oh, no, for sure. I'm all I'm all over that. Like, I, I love that kind of ethos is, you know, I think life is short and you know, thank you very much for being so honest about your mum. But you, like you say, you never know when it is going to be your time. And actually, you might live till you're 95, but you might not. And actually, it's, I think, embracing what you think you want to do where you can is so important. And, you know, I think we've, we talk a lot on this podcast about going into things that you think you should do sometimes because of parental pressures or societal pressures or even internal pressures from within yourself but there's a lot of people out there who follow a path at the age of 18 or whatever who because they think they should not because they actually think they want to and I think being honest from you know you being honest about 
the fact that you felt that you had more freedom to pursue something that you wanted to do is is very refreshing to hear Imogen to be to be quite honest definitely it's that freedom isn't it we but I think your parents invest a lot of time in you in your education and in I was the first one you know my parents to go to university I remember even in my first term I was like oh I'm not sure if it's for me and dad was like Imogen this is your only chance in your life that you get to read something for yourself for three years he's like even if you don't enjoy the degree this is teaching you how to budget it's teaching you how to go out and party but still be in your lecture the next day and work he's like those are things that you need for the workplace I think that's because my dad was a banker that did a lot of drinking as part of his <laughs> part of how he did deal. but it's kind of true and I'm glad that I did but I, you know so you're glad that you get the push from your parents sometimes but then other times they just want the best for you don't they but no one else can make those decisions for you yeah. And so um, you now have your own company with your husband, Duncan, which is Bangers and Balls. Um, I love the name. First of all, where, where did that come from? It's so We were sitting, we went to one of my cousin's weddings in New York and we were sitting in Williamsburg, which is quite similar to kind of like Bermondsey in London. It has that kind so of... So trendy. So trendy. Yeah. <laughs> we lived in Bermondsey. My cousin was in Williamsburg. So we were laughing and we were just sitting there having some meatballs. And we were talking about how, you know, if we could do anything in the world, what would it be? And my husband had left his job and you know, we were discussing it. And we just came up with the name Bangers and Balls. That was in 2013. And we loved it. And it was going to be that we were going to sell meatballs and sausages. And then you could choose whether to have mash or pasta or whatever. That was our kind of concept and we wanted to have these beautiful restaurants and we wanted to be bigger than McDonald's because you could have drive-in but it was this we love a bit of innuendo and I guess the bangers is me and the balls is Duncan maybe that's a bit rude but we're both from Essex as well so we wanted to have a bit of fun with it our business looks quite different to that now but bangers and balls people always remember the name and guess what no one else has got it so we haven't had any issues with trademarks (laughs) I love that I love that and so how it was but it was a while before you actually launched that company after having the idea in 2013 Imogen is that right what happened in the meantime definitely I was kind of petrified we got married in 2013 I was 30 years old I went to work for the my dream was that I wanted to be a CEO of a charity so I could drive change you know at an international level so I went to work for the institute of fundraising so that I know everyone in the sector for great networking and I worked in particular at Remember a Charity, and it was around behaviour change and getting people to talk more about death and to write a will and remember a gift um, in their legacy. And I got to do some amazing work with the Cabinet Office and with co-op around behaviour change that could raise an extra $1 billion for the UK market. And it just blew my mind. And then all of a sudden, behaviour change became so important to me. I'd always known it was there, but didn't really understand it. And then in my head, as we all do, I had this self-internal pressure. I wanted to be a director by the time I was 30. I kept thinking, I haven't done it yet. So just before my 31st birthday, off I went to become a director at Family Child Care Trust. I went in there for business development, but ended up also becoming director of marketing and fundraising. And I thought, wow, but do you know what? It didn't make me happy. And I thought, actually, I want my own business, but I was nervous just to go and start. So I went to work for a startup um, who had really good venture capitalists. They were on Hoxton Roundabout, all of the things. (laughs) They had a fridge full of drinks, something we never had in the charity sector. Um, And they wanted me to build strategic partnerships and also do the marketing. And it worked perfectly because it was also building these partnerships with charities. So it was something that I knew how to do. I went and worked there. And I mean, they were amazing, but the hours you work are huge. um, And you're doing it for someone else. I learned a lot about growth and about hacking. But after, I think about four months, I was kind of like, I've learned a lot now. I think I feel ready. But also, I feel like I'm like the death fairy. My dad had been diagnosed with um, lung cancer, which was terminal. So again, I was young and with my mother, I worked through it. Like, and so I'd look after her at night, but I'd still go to work. With my dad, I was like, I'm not doing that. So I quit my job, 
and I just spent the time with my father. I spent a pretty his poor step my poor stepmom sometimes must have thought, does she ever go home? But I just spent that time with him and spent the time in the hospice. And when he died, again, there was that thing. My dad, you know, he was so excited to see me as a director and to do this. But it was after he died then I realised that he sent me a message saying, set up your own business, do your own thing. You can do this. I know what it's, what you want to do. Don't feel like you have to do anything for anyone else. This is your chance. And I was like, wow. So I went away to America for a few months. My husband stayed in the UK, but I just needed that kind of headspace. And then when we came back, I just went, right, let's do it. Bangers and balls. We've, we've had the idea. We've done nothing with it. And I phoned up and I got a pop-up supper club. I got the date for it. I didn't tell my husband. And I said, right, we've got a date. And then when I got that one, I phoned up Little Nans, which was a top timeout bar in London, and said, can we come every Tuesday and pop up? We do pop up things in if I could say that now, because we had one. And um, went to see them, and they said yes. And all of a sudden, our business was kind of born. <laughs> my husband was a bit like, great, we're, we're doing this, because he was the, the foodie and, the, you know, was doing all the food, and I was doing the marketing. But it was pretty scary just to, just to do it and we didn't have a strategy or a plan which is what I'd normally tell everyone else to do but marketers can be the worst for that sometimes <laughs> do as I say don't do as I do hey Imogen exactly, exactly. <laughs> and how has your the, the how has your business kind of grown since then there's so much I want to touch on I want to talk about foraging and I want to talk about fairy tales and everything else that you do but um Tell me how you've developed Bangers and Balls from being a kind of, it was essentially a pop-up restaurant in the beginning. How have you kind of taken it in new directions? You know, you've had some very novel ideas. The foraging is is amazing. And I think this ethos of getting people to eat food from your environment and eat locally is, is obviously a big part of your business. Can you just talk me through how you've kind of developed those ideas and, and worked them into your business? Oh, definitely. Because when we first started, we were doing pop-ups and we were trying to do it in pubs that didn't do food so we could drive traffic into those pubs for them. That was my marketing head. How can we help drive people in and make conversions? And but straight away, my husband was using like nettles in his food and foraging. And we really enjoyed that part. And we realized it set us apart. But actually in pubs that weren't already doing food, were we, re- were we just working really hard to direct people in there that wouldn't normally go there but enjoyed what we did and followed so we kind of thought "Mm," and we approached a place called edible culture who we just loved because it's where we bought a lot of our plants from they were organic they don't use pesticides and that's when we started to realize what our sense of purpose was I think coming from the charity sector not just because of that but it was so important to me and it was it was the core part of it. So I see a lot of businesses doing it now or adding it on sometimes. Um, and I think it has to come from your inner heart. You have to be authentic. And so we then started to pop up outside. And we loved popping up outside um, and in greenhouses and much more with where the food came from. And we've seen people's excitement. And they started to ask us more questions. They're like, well, where did how do you know what sea beet looks like to put it on your menu? How do you know what this is? And a lot of this was knowledge that we just had, but we also were learning and we'd made a commitment to learn one new thing a week. So we thought, why not start sharing that with our followers? Because everyone, I know like people's mental mental health and everyone has mental health. Like I say, when people say they're on a diet, like we all have a diet, don't we? We all eat certain things, whatever that is. It's, we all have mental health and we found that by going out to forage one thing a week it really helped with overwhelm and not doing too much because whenever people learn whether it's to cook or to sew they want to learn everything at once but motivation goes up and down they say is it the new york times said that if 10 people start a course only one of them finish it and we obviously want to bring people on that journey so if I'm honest we didn't have a true strategy when we started it started off doing the pop-up events and then we realized how much we engaged with our diners and we weren't a typical restaurant where we're just driving people to get sales but 
we were interacting with them and started doing experiencing experience days like pick it cook it eat it so we took people to the farm to pick their own weird and wonderful veg because we were so amazed by these local producers and we thought wow we can show other people how amazing that you can get an electric daisy I don't know have you ever had an electric daisy now no I've never even heard of an electric daisy imagine if I'm honest <laughs> I, was, I was at a, like a, a pop-up and one of the farmers came across me I said she's a farmer but she's you know 23 she has a wonky parsnip and she gave me an electric daisy and I ate it and I was like what have you just given me I'm pregnant and she said oh no it's natural and they grow in Peru and they used to be to help with them um, if you had toothache but they basically make your mouth tingle and it's quite amazing that for Halloween, we made like nettle cakes that were green and then put this tingling electric daisy through the icing. So it was like a Frankenstein gave you a shock kind of cake. And when you start to see the magic behind these things, it's just amazing. And so I get really excited and passionate when I'm talking about it. But we wanted to show more people this and it doesn't just have to be if you live in the countryside and you were going to a farmer's market. because not accessible for all because farmers markets are normally not all I hate saying they are more expensive but certain things are and actually other things are not more expensive they're cheaper than the supermarkets but it's how we place value on things sometimes absolutely and you said you go foraging for one new thing a week how how do you guys learn like where do you get your knowledge from is it books or have you got people that help you have you had someone kind of mentor you through your foraging journey as it were or how have you done that We've read a lot of books is where we get a lot of our information and also from podcasts, but also like my uncle is in his 80s and he has foraged his whole life. So I learn a lot from him. And actually, when you speak to people locally, they always have a huge local knowledge and people are quite happy to share or, or to swap knowledge. Um, but for example, like I'd never foraged violets until last week. I know what violets look like, but I hadn't gone out to get them before. So we went out to get them and it was raining, but we set up a membership group. So we actually do it together. So in lockdown, obviously, you know, our supper club absolutely stopped because you couldn't do them. And I, again, I sound like the death row, but we also lost our daughter. And I just needed a sense of purpose. To, you've got a three-year-old as well, and I need something to get up for and to do. So we set up the Foodie Revolution, which is starting a revolution from your kitchen table and we asked people to join us and we were going to teach them to preserve one thing a week and to forage one thing a week so we asked them what they want to learn to forage as well and we've just all done it together but some things are so easy like we did dandelion everyone knows what a dandelion looks like but they might just have never foraged it or you get worried should you not take the larger ones because they're for the bees and, and, and it's learning this kind of knowledge um, and we bring experts in as well to teach our community, which also teach us in turn. I mean, what better way is there to learn as you're all learning together? That's what I love about it. Because I know we all feel like imposter sometimes that you can't be an expert if you're still learning. But no one knows any everything. If you ask Einstein, he'd probably say he didn't know that much. Or you ask Newton, they wouldn't be saying, oh, I know everything. And no one does. It takes even after a lifetime, you're still consistently learning. I wouldn't eat the dandelions out of my garden. I think the dogs peed all over them. But yeah, <laughs> I'm sure I'd like to, maybe we fire some from somewhere else. But definitely our ones are a bit dodgy. Boil <laughs> them first, you'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, they'll get all the impurities out of them. <laughs> well, I think sometimes it's psychological though, as well, isn't it? Of like that thing of going out and picking something from the wild when people are not used to doing that it's not in our cultural ethos anymore really unless you grow vegetables in your garden or you have an allotment which is a little bit different because it seems even that is a little bit more farmed quote unquote that you know it's planned things are put in to take out the idea of actually kind of going out into your environment and and, and taking things that are just wild I think seems very alien to people these days doesn't it um do you find that people are nervous when they come to you Imogen when you first start or do, is it everybody coming with a sense of I want to do this enthusiasm I think there's definitely a nervousness sometimes but there's also this kind of awe and wonder I think that's why we called it foraging fairy tales to show that it's so entwined in 
our culture, but we've kind of only two or three generations ago that it would be so normal and it's just been lost as it's come down. But it gets you out in nature and it gives you a sense of purpose to what you're doing. And we find that when people come to us, it's the first of all, it's having a sense of purpose to get them to walk that's more important. And then it becomes about how they can cook and use it. But often it's when people have children or grandchildren and because children ask so many questions, what's that mummy? What does that look like? But we often start with things that are higher up. So like in June, we talk about it's a big month for elderflowers. The higher up people feel happier picking something from higher. And then also in September, we do the hedgerow. So it's picking blackberries because most people have done blackberries. But what we find people get really excited about is wild garlic because a lot of people haven't picked it before, but they see it everywhere now with chefs and on the TV talking about it. So one, and once you know where it is locally, you know, and it really smells pungently and it just tastes so good. I don't know why it tastes so much better than garlic. Partly because I feel like I'm stealing from nature, maybe sometimes it's my bounty. But it, and I mean, for me to get to do this as my career and to talk about it all day, I can't actually believe how lucky I am. Sometimes I pinch myself because it's it's something that we would do anyway. So you've got bangers and balls, foodie revolution, foraging fairy tales. We've got all all sorts of brands going on there. Um, I did hear you have got a podcast coming up as well. Um, tell us what have you got kind of coming up in the future with all of that? So we have our different, so our overarching brand is bangers and balls, and then we have the foodie revolution, and then we have the foraging fairy tales that sit underneath it, and. We've got our podcast coming up, and we're just which is going to be starting a revolution from your kitchen table. And Duncan, who is a co-founder as well, is going to be taking the lead on that. I'm there as his sidekick. I like to bring a bit of the humour and um, also ask the questions that maybe other people don't ask because they're a bit worried. I often he says Blanche something. I'm like, what does that mean? Is that a character from Coronation Street? <laughs> so. <laughs> That's part of my book, but what we're really doing is we're going to drill down and investigate a bit more. So, talking about one of the things we were talking about, for example, a few weeks ago with honey, and if it says it's 100% honey, is it 100% honey? And actually, a lot of the time, it's it's not. And so, how can you find that out? Where can you go? But also bringing these stories of foraging fairy tales to life to make it exciting for people and interesting because I find a lot of the foraging books are very scientific and they can put you off because it's very like this is where you look and this is the date and this is it's like oh god it feels like I'm at school and it's science and we want to bring that magic and excitement um into it so that you can do it with your children and feel amazing or with your grandparents or with your neighbor and have excitement so that our strategy now is much more around creating that awe and wonderment but also creating revolution so getting people to think differently and to work together as communities. And that's the kind of foundation of everything. But then with our clear values around, we don't have an environmental policy, for example. We say balls to an environmental policy because it should be, in everything we do, we're always thinking of the environment. It's not an add-on. But we don't always get it right. And we're honest about that. We haven't got an electric car yet. We haven't got the budget yet, but it's on our target list to hit and it's about not hiding that because people are like oh you should hide your car and I'm like no there's lots of people out there who would love to you know change their car they might have diesel or whatever but they can't do it yet and that's okay we don't all need to be perfect overnight you don't need to hide your plastic bottle from me I was just I was just thinking while you were talking then I was just like oh my god there's I can in my head I can just see the most beautiful foraging fairy tales book with incredible illustrations specific details but also like a mixture of like beautiful scientific drawings and incredible like fairy tales alongside it I feel there's a book in there somewhere if I'm honest I can picture it in my head (laughs) we're doing we're releasing it weekly um, which helps us to produce content anyone who knows a business as a business you know that things can just happen so fast but we're producing it and we're getting it ready for October for our launch and we're working with some illustrators so we're really excited to bring this to life and we've got an elderflower one coming out in June 
not all going to be as beautifully illustrated as we like, but we've got some amazing pictures going in there um, and some lovely illustrations as well. Um, but our October, when we have our foraging fairy tales, we can't wait. It's myself, Duncan, and we've also got Alicia in our team as our marketing assistant now, thanks to the amazing Kickstart scheme, which has been an absolute game changer for us. So, yeah, if you haven't gone out and got the Kickstart scheme and you're eligible, I really would recommend it. Yeah, amazing. I'll give that a nod, actually, and I'll include a link to the Kickstart team in the in the show notes as well, so people can go and have a look at that. And um, you did, you've alluded several times to the kind of grief that you've encountered with your mum and, and your dad and, and very sadly your daughter last year, Imogen, as well. And I know you've spoken a lot before about the role that swimming and particularly wild swimming has kind of played in your life around that. You seem to me to be somebody who's very connected with the earth and the environment around you. How do you think that's helped both in your personal and professional lives in terms of helping your mental health in particular, but but also just your kind of grounding in general? I think it's helped beyond measure because it's funny because I'm not, people often think I'm going to be quite hippie, which is fine. And I'm not, like I, I grew up loving garage and going night clubbing, but I would then be in the, in the sea the next morning having a swim. It always comes back to that or when, you know, I worked for NSPCC or Family and Childhood Trust, I would cycle to a lot of my meetings because I needed that time outside to switch off um and now you know with losing my daughter I think that you know that was one of the hardest things I've ever had to deal with and will continue to but the swimming and I know it sounds dark but it's hard sometimes to have to do things by nine o'clock or by 11 o'clock especially when we were in a pandemic time but having to be somewhere because the tide's in at sunset or at sunrise it creates a different kind of ebb and flow to your day and it creates that urgency and it's this, with swimming I've created um it's part of a national group the blue tip but I set up the local one with two friends and we've got over 500 members now so to have those people to go and swim with was absolutely huge during not because it it gives you you know it's like when you mentor someone or the buddy that you work with when you're building your career it's the same with swimming. It makes you go and do it because you don't want to let that person down. But when you've been into the sea, I always say there's a reason why religion uses baptism or, you know, however they use it, because you feel like you are born again when you come out of the sea and everything you're worried about is gone. But if I've got a problem with work or I'm worried about cash flow, because we all have it as a small business, going for a swim kind of gets me out of that. So I can actually think much more around solutions because I've given myself that space and we know as well being in the woodland it actually would produce the serotonin in your brain it actually helps you with overwhelm and with your fight or flight mode so last week I'm pregnant at the moment which is very exciting for us oh, congratulations weeks. So, but also nerve-wracking um because you know we're going to bring up a lot of emotions again um and because our, our little girl was eight weeks old when she got airlifted to um, to London, she just stopped breathing. So, of course, it's going to bring up some of those emotions. So we went glamping. I didn't go camping because it was really, it was so cold, which is unlike me. But we went glamping and we were out in the woodland and all we could have spent a last week inside trying to work on the business, being really anxious and probably not doing very much, but feeling like we had to sit in front of our computer and, you know, go and make content. But actually, we went glamping. We sat around the fire. We got so much done. And we also just had downtime as a family. And when we went for that scan on Friday, it made us feel so much happier. So I think it's giving yourself permission as well to to do what you need to do and not feel guilty about that. Yeah, it's amazing. And thank you for your honesty and and generosity and kind of talking about this, because I think baby loss and, and infant death is something that is often talk, not discussed because of feelings of grief and shame and and everything else that goes along with that and it's um I, you know we have these conversations and I think it is really important for people to hear them I spoke to Alexandra Hemingsley on this podcast a couple of years ago who wrote if anyone hasn't read it her book Leap In is all about the uh, the joy of wild swimming and how it helped her recover from from miscarriage and baby loss as well and it's an incredible thing to be able to get in the ocean and and like you say have that feeling of coming out being born again when all of your everything that's in your head disappears when you're swimming I think is that how you would see it Imogen definitely everything disappears 
it just goes. And I think I grew up around the world, but the one thing my parents would not live anywhere that wasn't near a beach. <laughs> I think that was my mum. So in Pakistan, we went to the beach every Friday. In Australia, we went to the beach. And obviously in Ireland, we'd go and mum had to move to Essex. She found out she found the driest spot in England, which was great, great wakering. So we moved to Thorpe Bay. And I remember her telling my father she would return to Ireland if she didn't have a beach hut. Um, she didn't drink or smoke, she said. So he should he could give that up and get her one. So they had this beach hut and we've got. And in fairness, when my dad, you know, when he got, we moved to Whitstable, so we've got a beach hut here only because we'd had one before that we could. But it, it's given us that freedom. And I think for me as well, I'm, I'm dyslexic, I'm quite severely dyslexic. And being in the sea, there's no signs, there's no words, there's nothing else just apart from you. And when you get into that cold, it was, I prefer it when it's cold, if I'm honest, because when you get into that cold sea, it kind of makes you whoop. It sounds like it should be a house track when you hear the others going in as well. And you feel that cold kind of surge over you. But then the serotonin comes out and your body just you get like prickly and you feel quite warm and you get this rush of kind of like happiness. And when you come out of the sea, what I find really interesting is, is that people sit there and you have these real one to one conversations um, that are really deep. It's almost like, you know been at a festival and people sit there or you know in the pub and people tell you everything and people do this after swimming so I think that community that's built is huge and for me especially in lockdown I couldn't see my friends or my family we've moved to somewhere different and I remember we always had bubbles for being my little girl least covid friendly thing you could do but I didn't think about the time and I went down then because we couldn't be with people there was just lots of them all lined up at different parts of the beach in groups of six it was allowed at the time blowing bubbles and they lined them all up where I was going to go and swim and put bubbles along there and I just oh that the community and how that made me feel was just amazing because we couldn't yeah have a memorial for her or anything um because again because of the numbers so it was really tough and yeah the wild swimming is just to me it's been a game changer and I think when you're setting up your own business you need to protect your mental health because it can become all in all-encompassing and you're just working in it and on it without having that space away and I believe you really need that space away to allow your business to grow because that's when you have your best ideas and thoughts. Gosh you're such an inspiration Imogen I'm just kind of I'm so admiring of of everything you've done and just chatting to you is fantastic because you've you've kind of done a lot but you've done a lot of different things and I love that you just set up a swimming club that's now got 500 people in it as well. <laughs> it's just like, you strike me as the kind of woman who I absolutely love to feature on this podcast because you see a gap and you go for it. You're not afraid to, to kind of take the road less traveled and and follow your own path. And, and, you know, really pursue things that you're passionate about and everything you talk about, you just talk about with such a passion, which I just find absolutely incredible. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And I think, yeah, I always feel embarrassed when some people say you're an inspiration because it's, you know, you don't feel like that in yourself. But I think one of the biggest things is once you're okay with the fact that something might fail, then all of a sudden the world opens up to you because you can do anything. And actually you fail a lot less because you're not as worried about it. So you don't overthink. But I definitely think that it's once you give yourself kind of the, not the excuse, but you say it's okay if I fail, I'll work out why it failed and how I can tweak it and do it differently. Then nothing really fails in the same way because you're not as over worried so my father always used to say if something doesn't fail once a year you're not um you're not out of the box enough so you need to push yourself a bit harder girl you are speaking my language that is for sure I I love to ski and I always think if I'm not falling I'm not trying hard enough so <laughs> love that. Love that. Every time I end up with a face full of snow, I'm like, it's a learning experience. <laughs> um, <laughs> but anyway, and I always um, just throw the floor open to guests at the end of every uh, one of these podcasts, Imogen, to say, is there anything that you've learned in your career or anything else that you'd like to talk about that, you know, other women either going into their own business or working in the charity sector or in relation to anything you've you've done that, that you think is useful or, or pertinent? I think for me, especially as a woman, it's really, or a man, it's a bit, you know, it's to plan your career. We plan a holiday, but we don't often plan our career. And I don't mean in saying I have to be, like, I got this a bit wrong saying I have to be here at this time, or be, but it's working out 
it's giving yourself almost like what makes you happy is your career still making you happy and being able to reflect on that and also if you you might want to have children you might not but working out okay if I take that gap at that point what does that look like and what am I going to do with it so you're honest to yourself or do I want to take a year out to go traveling but planning that in because otherwise life goes by so quickly that you just don't get the chance to do things like that so my thing would definitely be yeah sitting down and we plan holidays plan your life out a little bit you don't always have to stick to it but it gives you some (laughs) goals and also reflecting every year is it still making me happy because I speak to so many people in their careers where they're really not happy and then when you work out it's not actually the career if they just change their role slightly and spoke to their manager it would make them happier or for some people it's like actually I haven't enjoyed what I've done for the last 15 years but I'm too scared to leave you think you're actually quite young you can, you can do it. And even if you're not, you meet people in their 60s who change careers. And we worry too much, I think, sometimes about how others perceive us or what we should be doing. So yeah, my biggest thing is to is to plan and work out if you feel happy. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And where can people find you, Imogen? Either through swimming, through bangers and balls, through your personal stuff. Where's the best place for people to either follow what you're up to or get in touch with you? Good. I'm on LinkedIn as Imogen Tinkler. So more than like give me a follow on there and you can um, DM if you've got any questions. And then we're on Facebook and Instagram as Bangers and Balls. So that comes up quite easily, <laughs> Bangers and Balls. So I know if anyone's got anything, they especially like sometimes with grief and things, because a lot of people don't talk about baby loss. Anyone ever wants to message me, I've always got an open inbox, but or about their careers or anything. Just, yeah, I'm always here and I, I love speaking to people. So I'm always here. That's all for this week. If you've enjoyed this episode, please just share it wherever you can on your own social media. And if you found the podcast interesting or useful, then do please tell a friend because we are always keen for new listeners. If you can find it in your heart to rate and review the podcast on iTunes or give us a shout out on your socials, then we'd love you very much as it genuinely does help other people to find us. We're on Instagram and Facebook at The Skylark Collective and our website is www.skylarkcollective.co.uk. See you next time.